It sounds like a James Bond movie. Catholic priests as spies who collaborated with the secret police. Clergymen who met in secret with officers of the socialist regime to report about other church members. High representatives of the church who willingly violated their own moral standards. Another scandal in recent church history that has been kept secret for too long. Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Orit Gazit, who is interviewing Dr. Gregor Bus, a Catholic theologian and ethicist. But not in my time. I was there. He was my successor. Yes, in that time. And these Stasi visits were from... ging genau ein Jahr, fast auf den Tag, mhm. Juni 1969 bis Juni 1970. Gregor, who is talking here? It's Clemens Rosner, a priest from Leipzig, whom I have interviewed as part of my research. We met in his apartment and talked about his past as unofficial collaborator of the Stasi. Unofficial collaborator? Yes, this is the term that was used by the Stasi, the Ministry for State Security. The informants who delivered private information to the Stasi were called unofficial collaborators. Like many terms of the Stasi vocabulary, also this one sounds harmless. It is to disguise the real function of these collaborators. The people in East Germany usually just call them spies. So there were 86 spies among the Catholic priests in the GDR, in the German Democratic Republic? Then was the Catholic Church infiltrated by the Stasi? No, we can't say this. We have to be very careful here. The fact that a priest was registered as unofficial collaborator doesn't say a lot. It is true, usually this registration shows that there was some kind of contact between the priest and the Ministry for State Security, the Stasi, but in how far this contact led to a real corporation, spying included, has to be checked carefully. Note quick judgments. It seems to me that you're trying to downplay the Stasi contacts with the Catholic Church. Are 86 cases not a very high number? I mean, doesn't this indicate that the Catholic Church was completely under the control of the Socialist Party? My suggestion would be to take uh, one concrete example. I would like to suggest to take the example of Clemens Rosner, the priest we just heard in the clip before. Um, let's have a closer look at his case and from there let's try to understand better how the Stasi worked and why some priests collaborated with the Stasi. Okay, so how did Rosner get in contact with the Stasi? As I already mentioned, he was a student pastor in Leipzig between 1966 and 1971. During this time, he met a couple of times with the Stasi officer. The Stasi was generally interested in student parishes and always tried to infiltrate these groups. When they got the chance to get in touch with the head of the student parish in Leipzig, they didn't hesitate long. Rosner was for them a person of very high interest. Leipzig has always been a highly politicized city, especially among students. He was like a gateway into these groups. But how could Rosner agree to meeting with a Stasi officer? I'm sure he knew that it could harm his church and create trouble for his students. Of course he was aware of all this, but... The problem was that he was in a way blackmailed. He was blackmailed? Yes, that's a complex story. Let me try to explain it step by step. 
It was especially related to a smuggling activity that Rosner carried out as a young priest. In the mid-1960s, he smuggled tons of scarce goods into the GDR, into East Germany. For example, forbidden literature, but also car engines or a washing machine. The recipients of these rare products came from all over the GDR. How could he smuggle tons of goods? He was born in West Germany in 1930 and only moved to the GDR in 1954, so that's why he still had many contacts in West Germany. And the transportation was carried out by a drug driver from Leipzig, whom he knew. And then the Stasi found out about these smuggling activities and blackmailed Rosner? Not really. The story made a few more twists. Rosner didn't only smuggle goods, but also money into the country. The East German student parishes were supported from the West with this money. It was about 80,000 Deutschmark per year. Such a large sum couldn't simply be smuggled across the border. Western money, of course, was always suspicious. So Rosner had to find another way to bring the money in. He found the solution in the Genex. The Genex was a company founded by the GDR government. It distributed a catalogue from which the citizens in West Germany could order goods and pay in Westmark in order to send them directly to their relatives or friends in East Germany. One may say, Genex was founded by the socialist regime to bring foreign exchange into the country. But it's still not clear to me how Rosner got the money via Genex. Now Rosner's father comes into play. The father still lived in West Germany and could order products from this Genex catalogue. Among other things, it was possible to order cars. This was of huge interest to many East German citizens because they were able to avoid the usual waiting periods. Sometimes people had to wait several years to get such a car. So these people told Rosner that they wanted to have a certain type of a car and his father, Rosner's father, bought these cars with the 80,000 Westmark that were meant for the student parishes. The recipients in East Germany gave Rosner the corresponding sum in Ostmark, in the East German currency. It was usually in cash. So we could say that the whole process was kind of a money laundering operation. And Rosner, in the end, could take the money and distribute it to the different student groups. And I guess this money was very important for these groups? Yes, sure. Rosner told me that this financial support was absolutely vital, especially for the smaller groups. And the Stasi found out about these illegal financial activities and blackmailed Rosner? That was still not quite the case. Our crime story had another twist. Now the son of the truck driver comes into play. Do you remember the truck driver that smuggled tons of goods for Rosner? So the son of this truck driver committed a theft in 1969 and used one of the Genex cars as a getaway car. The investigators found out that Rosner's father had bought this car. Therefore, they suspected that Rosner also was involved in this deal. So, he was under immense pressure. Yes, sure. What if the state organs found out not only about one, but also about all the other Genex donations? There was an imminent threat that the secret financial support of all student parishes would be disclosed. The whole system was about to collapse. And what did Rosner do? Well, he was very careful, of course. He didn't know how much the investigators knew, so he tried to pretend that he wasn't involved. And did the investigators believe him? No, not at all. During the lawsuit against the son of the truck driver, they had clearly found out that Rosner and his father were both involved. That's how the Stasi set up the trap. Who contacted Rosner? Was it an officer of the Stasi? 
Yes, all these investigations were carried out by the Stasi. To my surprise, they contacted Rosner only after the lawsuit against the Sun was already over. Why so late? I have no idea. Also, Rosner couldn't give me an answer when I asked him. But we know quite well how the first encounter between Rosner and the Stasi officers went about. When was that? All of this is recorded in the Stasi file of Rosner on many, many pages. So, on June 26th in 1969, at three o'clock in the afternoon, two Stasi officers rang the door of the pastor's apartment. They identified themselves as state security employees, but gave false names. After a brief welcome, they confronted Rosner straight away with a question of how he was related to the convicted truck driver's son. Rosner first tried to talk himself out of this, but then could no longer deny it. To his surprise, the two officers did not put too much pressure on him. Why not? I think there are two explanations. First, they apparently didn't know everything about Rosner's illegal activities. They obviously knew that he was involved in the purchase of one car, but they didn't know about all the other Gainax donations. And they probably didn't have a clue about the other smuggling activities, the books, the washing machine and so on. I still don't fully understand why the Gainax donations were illegal. Didn't you say it was a state-owned company that was exactly created for this purpose? Yes, but the large amount of money was the problem. And on top of this, of course, the secret financial support of East German parishes by the West was illegal. This is why Rosner was so scared. If it had become public that the parishes were funded by the West, the so-called enemy, they could have been shut down. So the Stasi was really, really very close to deciphering a very big underground operation. But they didn't get there. If they had known more, they probably would have put much more pressure on Rosner. Okay. This was one of the reasons why the Stasi did not pressure the priest that much. But you mentioned before that there was a second reason. Yes, the second reason has to do with Stasi psychology. Stasi psychology? Yes, the officers were trained in psychology. They knew very well how to recruit their informants. From their experience, they have learned that those collaborators who have voluntarily agreed to give information were much more effective than those who have been massively pressured. So friendship worked better than fear? So to say, yes, blackmailing priests was one way to find unofficial collaborators among priests, but it was not the most successful one. In my research I found out that blackmailing was only used in the 1950s and 60s. Later, the Stasi renounced this method. Interesting. So the Stasi tried to show a friendly face? Mostly yes. It was clear to everyone in East Germany that the Stasi was the most powerful institution, but the officers tried to give it a friendly face. Let's go back to our case. What happened to Rosner after he agreed to meet the Stasi officers again? In the following months, he met with one of them. The other officer was only present at the first meeting. According to Rosner, there were a total of seven meetings between the summer of 1969 and the summer of 1970. I checked this information with the reports I found in his Stasi file and could verify it. There were indeed seven meetings. Where did Rosner and his Stasi officer meet? Always in Rosner's apartment. And it's interesting to see that these meetings took place in the morning. Rosner planned it like this in order to report afterwards to his fellow priests, usually over lunch. He lived in a community of priests and wanted to let them know what was going on. And his fellow priests were not the only ones who knew about it. Two days after Rosner was visited by the Stasi for the first time, he told his bishop about this incident. So it wasn't a secret. 
Yes and no. The students, for example, in Rosner's parish didn't know anything about these talks. Rosner didn't want to tell them. He feared they would lose their confidence in him. What did Rosner and the Stasi officer talk about? Above all, the Ministry for State Security tried to influence the student parishes. These university groups were notorious for their social and political commitment, and they were kind of a thorn in the side of the GDR regime. One should not forget that the time in which Rosner had contacts with the Stasi was a time of great social upheaval, often led by the student protest movements. And did the plan work? Not really. Rosner was too strong a personality. He did not simply fulfill the wishes of the Stasi. Why did the contact end after a year? Because Rosner told other student pastors about his contacts. He wrote about it in a letter. And the Stasi got to know this. The secret collaboration was so revealed. In the eyes of the state security, Rosner became worthless as a source. Did this have any consequences for him? Was he punished in any way? No, that also surprised me. After the last meeting with his officer, Rosner heard nothing more from the Stasi. Really? It just ended like this? Yes, it was over. What does Rosner think about his Stasi contacts today? Does he regret anything? In our interview, I ask him exactly the same question. Und zwar haben Sie im Brief geschrieben, eigentlich hätte ich schon beim zweiten Treffen sagen sollen, ja. ich möchte nicht mehr. Ja. Können Sie da vielleicht noch? Ja. ja. <coughs> Und da war, also wenn ich jetzt nicht diese Geschichte mit dem vielen Geld, ja. das dauernd umgerubelt wurde, wir sagten immer umrubeln, <lacht> ähm, äh, gewesen wäre, hätte ich beim zweiten Treffen gesagt, also von mir kriegen sie nichts raus, mhm. was sie nicht schon wissen. Mhm. Äh, und ich äh, bin auch nicht bereit, in den meisten Punkten... What Rosner is basically saying here is that he could have stopped the contact with the Stasi already after the second meeting. But he didn't know how much or how little information they had about his smuggling activities. He wanted to wait for that. But he did not report any of his students to the Stasi. That was important for him. He tried to talk about irrelevant topics only. But still, doesn't he feel guilty for what he did? In a way, he betrayed his students by not telling them the whole truth. But what was his alternative? He was in a dilemma. He feared that the Stasi could blackmail him because of his illegal activities. On the other hand, he did all this not for his own benefit, but to help the student parishes. And, by the way, these groups were not only important for the Catholic Church. They were one of the last bastions of freedom in a fully state-controlled society. That's why the churches, especially the Protestant, but also the Catholic, played such an important role when the regime collapsed. This was in 1989. 40 years after the Socialist Republic in East Germany was established. Let's turn away a bit from the interesting case of Rosner and speak about these 40 years in general. What was the situation of the Catholic Church in East Germany? Catholics were a small minority in the GDR. At the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, in 1989, about 5% of the citizens were Catholic. Nevertheless, this small group had a great social influence and was instrumental in overthrowing the regime. Time and again attempts were made to infiltrate the churches and to curb their influence. And by the way, quite successfully. While in 1950, more than 90% of the GDR population belonged to one of the two major churches, in 1989 it was only 30%. And I guess that the Ministry of State Security played a central role here. Yes, of course. 
this ministry was the backbone of the socialist regime. Without it, the Socialist Party hadn't been able to stay in power. The Stasi was their life insurance. Just look at the numbers. In 1989, the Ministry of State Security had about 90,000 employees. Officers, policemen, secretaries. And on top of this, an armada of about 170,000 unofficial collaborators. 170,000! No other East European regime had such a surveillance web. And remember, these are only the numbers of active collaborators in 1989. Over the 40 years of GDR history, we had about 620,000 collaborators. Wow! And only 86 of them were Catholic priests? Yes, that's what I found out in my research. 86 out of 620,000 doesn't sound so much. Yes, but let me try to put it in context. As I said, the group of Catholic priests was quite small. Catholics were only a minority in East Germany. That's why we only had a few thousand priests over the 40 years. The percentage of priests who had contact with the Stasi was probably even higher than in the general population. Maybe something between 1 and 5%. Hmm, I didn't expect this. I thought it was much more difficult to recruit informants among priests than among the general population. I was also surprised, but only at first sight. You shouldn't forget that priests were in an important position. They had influence over other people. That's why the Stasi was after them. Who were these 86 priests? I'm curious, what was their background? Each case, of course, was different. But I can give you some indicators. I found out, for example, that the average age of a priest who was contacted by the Stasi was 49. So it was not the young priests that were easy to convince to collaborate, but rather the middle-aged ones. Maybe it was because priests in their 40s were in a leading position in the church. Or because some of them were in a kind of midlife crisis and more open to the seductions of the Stasi, it's difficult to say. What do you mean by seductions? I'm thinking now of women who seduced priests. Did the Stasi try this? Did they want priests to break their promise of celibacy and then blackmail them? Maybe they tried it in the early years of the Stasi, but I don't know of any such case. This is not what I meant by seductions. I was rather thinking of small presents, privileges, or just the attention that was given to them. These men often live quite a lonely life. Yes, in public they are surrounded by many people, but at home they are usually alone. Hmm, very interesting. You're saying that priests collaborated with the Stasi out of loneliness? Yes, in some cases for sure. The visits by the Stasi officer were a relief from the frustrating everyday life. This was one motivation. Not the main motivation, I would say, but it happened. What was the main motivation then? Why did priests collaborate with the Stasi? Difficult question. I saw in your book that you developed a whole catalog of different motivations. Yes, that was one of my main goals. I wanted to find out why the priests got involved with the Stasi, even though they knew exactly who the Stasi was. I studied the files carefully and also conducted a number of interviews, also with psychologists. In the end, I came up with a list of 12 reasons for the collaboration. Can you give us some examples? Well, we came already across some of these motivations in the case of Rosner, the priest from Leipzig. I mean, the obvious reason here was blackmailing. Rosner was put under heavy pressure because he was involved in illegal activities. But this was probably not the only reason. He also feared the consequences of saying no, of rejecting the collaboration. And maybe the collaboration was also a form of adaptation or compromise. From his perspective, he chose the lesser evil. Blackmailing, fear, adaptation, 
different reasons came into play here. I see. So it was possible that several motives worked at the same time here? Of course. This was usually the case. And I could read oftentimes in the files that these motifs also changed in the course of time. Don't forget that some of the priests had contact with the Stasi for more than 20 or even 30 years. Some of them were very anxious in the beginning, but then changed and started to enjoy the privileges of this collaboration. Could you give us some more examples? We could take the case of collaborator Berg, for example. So I assume Berg was his codename? Yes, this was the name the Stasi gave him. He was a priest from the German-German border region. He did not hesitate to accept personal gifts from the Stasi. At a meeting, for example, his officer gave him a bottle of cognac as a thank you for a catechism. That's a Catholic book. Berg also tried to use his contacts to get travel permits. But most of all, the Stasi helped him with his big hobby, operating a radio system. Getting a radio license in the GDR was not an easy thing, because every radio operator was automatically suspected of having contacts with the enemy. This was all the more true for Berg, because he lived in the German-German border region, very close to West Germany. So it is not surprising that he was very happy when he finally got such a license. Small presents, travel permits, a radio license, this priest received quite a lot of benefits from the Stasi. Was this common? This was a clever method to bind the priest to the Stasi. Not all priests accepted them, but quite a lot did, often unwillingly. Presents were, for example, common for birthdays, or to thank a priest for many years of cooperation. In some files we find a whole stack of receipts for the gifts that were made. There is one case where a priest got almost half a household. Books, alcoholic beverages, a garden chair, a valuable clock, a wooden rack for spices, a barbecue, a chess set, flowers, a table lamp, stamps, camping furniture and beer mugs. All this within 15 years. Hmm, quite a lot to confess about. So did the priests want to enrich themselves through the Stasi collaboration? I don't think that this was their main motif. But these presents were sometimes a welcome side effect. But I would like to add that many priests were not after their personal benefit. We can read in the files that they tried to get travel permits also for other people, or that they asked the Stasi to help repair the roof of the church, so they didn't only think of themselves. Then personal benefits didn't play a major role? Would you collaborate for some books or beer mugs? Not really. No, the priests that I got to know were not greedy. They were rather careless or arrogant, often just frustrated or weak. We can take the case of collaborator Salem, a young priest from the city of Görlitz. Why did he collaborate? Out of frustration. Salem was in a deep life crisis. And the Stasi officer was there for him. He took care of him. Are you saying that the Stasi officer was like a friend to him or a therapist? In a way, yes. I see. So now we know how the collaboration began. Did you also research how it ended? Yes. First of all, I tried to find out how long the collaboration lasted. What do you think? How long did priests usually have contacts with the Stasi? I have no idea. Maybe a couple of years? The average was nine years. In some cases, the priest met only a couple of times with his officer, like in the case of Rosner. In other cases, the collaboration lasted for many years. In one case, more than 30 years. But why did it commonly end? I would say there are three different reasons. First, there are all the cases that were ended by the Stasi, for example, when the priest was not reliable enough or when the information he gave wasn't relevant enough. Secondly, there are the cases where the priest himself stopped the collaboration, 
by telling others about his Stasi context or simply by refusing to meet again. And thirdly, there are other cases that ended due to factors that were beyond control. For example, when a priest died or when the Berlin Wall fell. And which of these three reasons was the most common one to your opinion? The first was the most common one, so when the Stasi ended the contacts. In only every fifth case, it was the priest who ended the contact. But these few cases are of course highly relevant. They prove that it was possible to refuse to meet with the Stasi. And as far as I know, this refusal usually didn't have any negative consequences. So priests who nowadays try to defend themselves by saying, I didn't have any other choice, I had to meet with the Stasi, are not right. In many cases, they had the alternative to refuse the collaboration. Hmm, very interesting. But still, maybe the priests didn't know then that it wouldn't have any negative consequences. It's easy to say it now in retrospect. You're right. We have to be careful with our judgments here. Nonetheless, I would argue that a greater resistance would have been reasonable for most priests. You mentioned the priests that are still alive and have to deal somehow with their past. In the last part of our conversation, I would like to focus on what happened after 1989. What are these 86 priests doing today? How did the Catholic Church in Germany deal with this unpleasant topic? First of all, we have to take into account that most of these priests are already dead. I was only able to interview two of them. There are more that are still alive, but they couldn't or didn't want to talk to me. Some of them were just too old or sick. Others wrote me back that they didn't trust me and suspected another smear campaign against them or the church. The majority left my letter unanswered. Maybe they did not want to be reminded of the Stasi past. And the official church? How did they deal with this topic? I would say that the Catholic Church reacted quite quickly. After 1989, church leaders made it clear that the role of the church has to be investigated. And they meant both aspects, the church as victim but also as collaborator of the socialist regime. But my interest was to dig deeper and to find out about the motivation of the priests. So my main question was not who collaborated, but rather why and how did they collaborate? How did you find your answers then? The first step was to look into the Stasi files again, to look for traces and details that were probably overlooked by previous researchers. I sat in the archives for weeks and studied thousands of pages of protocols. The second step was to interview people, priests who were registered as unofficial collaborator, church leaders, other researchers, psychologists. Unfortunately, I couldn't speak to former Stasi officers. I contacted them, but they didn't give a reply. And what would you say were your biggest challenges during your research? For me, one challenge was that I didn't grow up in East Germany. I am from the West and couldn't share many of the experiences. But of course, this also had an advantage. I was not involved and maybe more neutral, at least I tried to be. Another challenge was the sheer amount of data. In the archives of the Stasi, there were 111 kilometers of material. 111 kilometers. My work sometimes felt like finding the needle in a haystack. And not only the quantity was a problem, also the quality. How reliable is the information given in the files? Can I trust them? And if possible, how can I cross-check them? These are the central questions for every historical work, of course. And did your findings have any consequences? You mean if some of the priests lost their jobs after my book was published? Well, yes, for example. No, this was not the case. Such disciplinary measures were already taken in the 1990s. 
But of course, my finding triggered new discussions about the role of the Catholic Church and the entanglement with the Stasi. Some church officials would like to close this chapter and not to talk about it anymore. But when I presented my book on several occasions in Germany, I could feel that this chapter cannot and should not be closed so easily. Many people suffered from the Stasi and their wounds are far from being healed. After one presentation, for example, I was able to speak to three people who were active in the student parish in Berlin. Also their pastor collaborated with the Stasi. Until today, for these former students, the loss of trust is still there, almost 30 years later. Then what do you think can the church do to heal these wounds? The church must face its own past, unconditionally. By giving a good example, it can hopefully regain its credibility and inspire other institutions to do the same. I would argue that no other occupational group in the GDR has been so thoroughly investigated for its Stasi past as Catholic priests. This is a great achievement. I am convinced that this difficult historical work is necessary to heal the wounds. Okay, we're coming to the end here, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think, Gregor? Can your findings be generalized or do they apply only to the small group of Catholic priests? I am sure that what we found out about priests is also true for many other people who collaborated with the Stasi. I would guess that the same motifs and mechanisms can be found also outside the church. And if we look beyond Germany, can we perhaps learn something about other totalitarian regimes? I have to admit that I'm not so familiar with other regimes, especially not outside Europe. But yes, I wouldn't be surprised if we find similar human behavior and wrongdoings also in other contexts. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the lives of women in early modern England and the emergence of the modern workday. Our thanks to Dr. Ben Belek, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website, German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.